If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Should we have a plural executive? Well, this interesting proposal from the American conservative and John C. Calhoun insists we should. I'll talk about it on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Once you're on that email list, you're going to get great stuff like coupons at McClanahan Academy or any kind of interesting information I've got for you. Do not unsubscribe from it. You'll regret it. You can also support the show, of course, of course, by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way or go to uh, anchor.fm or I should say Spotify for podcasters. You can subscribe there. You can also uh, click on the little super thanks button under the video if you want on YouTube. All those things help support the f- show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. That is a way we grow the audience. And of course, you can always go to McClanahan Academy too and purchase classes there. It's also a great way to support the show financially. All right, let's talk about the topic of the day. And it's this dual executive proposal that John C. Calhoun put forward in uh, his disquisition on government. Now, I've got an entire class at McClanahan Academy where we focus a pretty substantial amount of time on that disquisition and reading John C. Calhoun. And I find it fascinating that this particular piece, coming from the American conservative, actually says something positive about Calhoun. Now, that's an amazing thing here in 2023. And it's amazing because anytime you bring up Calhoun, of course, someone's going to say racist or slavery or neo-confederate, whatever it is, whatever stupid pejorative they want to throw out because they don't really have any kind of argument but that. But to actually take Calhoun seriously in some of the proposals that he had to limit the power of government is something that we should be looking at. You can divorce all the things and you want to say all these things about what Calhoun said about slavery or race, et cetera, et cetera. Then we have to do that with anybody. Uh, We have to do it with Lincoln or anybody else too. And of course, they're always willing to do that with those people, anyone they admire, but not someone they don't like. And Calhoun's discussion of government, discussion of power, the Constitution, these are very prescient positions because Calhoun had lived through it. He had seen what the dangerous effects of an uncontrollable central government could do. And at that time, they were much less than what it's doing now in terms of liberty or in terms of uh, abusing power. So we have his proposal of the concurrent majority. And oftentimes, that is, you know, thrown up there as, you know, this, well, Calhoun uh, had this concurrent majority proposal. This is just absolutely stupid, but nobody really knows how to refute it. It's simply a way for the minority to protect themselves from the majority. And all that Calhoun wanted, essentially, were supermajorities to pass any kind of legislation. If something really was beneficial, if something really was going to be a great policy for the 
vast majority of Americans, well, then it would pass. And there would be no way to stop it. What he wanted was veto-proof legislation, essentially. And so that was a way to protect any group of people or a state or a group of states from unconstitutional legislation or a naked power grab by the central government. Now, who would be against that? Well, of course, people that want naked power grabs by the central government. Whether you're on the left or the right, that's who would oppose these things. So I find it fascinating that the American conservative actually published a piece that was pretty laudatory of John C. Calhoun. And I've said before, if you want to think about reforming the general government, and you have political scientists that talk about this stuff all the time, they want a parliamentary system or they want some kind of uh, change to the American system, well, we should actually consider some of the things Calhoun mentioned in the 1840s and 50s, of course, posthumously in his disquisition, to actually, uh, that would actually reform the general government and make it harder for it to pass dangerous legislation. Those are things we should really think about. But to do that would require these idiots to get out of, the way, out of their own way and say things like racism, slavery. I mean, these aren't arguments. They're just pejoratives and hyperbole and, and chants and everything else that the left does. All right, so let's talk about this piece. The title is actually E Pluribus Duo. Why not have two presidents? And it's written by James Pinkerton at the American Conservative. And again, it's amazing that this was actually published at the American Conservative because the American Conservative is a mainline publication. And every now and then you do get something written that says something positive about Calhoun or at least his contributions to American society. It used to be uh, more frequent. Now you hardly see it at all. But um, Calhoun was one of the most important members of the United States Senate. Even John F. Kennedy pointed that out. I mean, people knew this. And they understood that he was a giant in the 19th century. And you may disagree with his positions on slavery and race and everything else. And I think that that's uh, perfectly logical. But to, uh, to say that he has nothing valuable to offer American society because of some things he said about those, again, it's, it's, uh, it fails logic 101. All right, so let's read this piece. Pickerton says, Americans wanted diversity. At least its leaders said it did. And now we're getting it, good and hard. By many accounts, the nation hasn't been this divided since the Civil War. Thus, we're reminded, diversity isn't just a matter of adding another letter to the LGBTQ acronym. It's also a matter of red versus blue, Republicans versus Democrats. And I think the amazing thing about this now, Republicans versus Democrats, you're actually seeing this become religious for people. I would say people haven't been this divided on these kind of things since really the 16th and 17th centuries. I would say, you know, 17th century uh, with the Protestant-Catholic divide in Europe. And I'm talking about Europeans now. And then by extension, of course, the United States, which is still part of Western civilization. But you haven't seen anything like this since the 17th century. Now, in the 17th century, people were willing to kill over these kind of things. And we're seeing that that's starting to happen. Politics has become so intense it's, it's a religious worship for people that they're starting to get violent about it in a way that, uh, again, when it comes to you know, simple things like, well, I don't agree with your position, uh, they identify as these things. There's an identity behind it, a red-blue identity that you, you haven't seen anything like this since the 17th century. And not even, I mean, you can bring up the Civil War where people did actually, again, kill each other over that. 
But it wasn't ideology at that point. There was an independence movement. People were out. There was an effort to save the Union. Uh, that was the goal of the war. Ending slavery was a byproduct of that. But the goal of the war was to save the Union, to save this national identity, right? These, these things are mine. I often, something I use in a class, and I'll say it here uh, in my, my latest class at McLeanahan Academy, Secession. When you hear people talk about secession, that's mine, right? So you can't leave the Union because that's mine. In other words, any state in the Union, that territory is part of the United States. It's like a dog barking at somebody walking in their neighborhood uh, because that's their neighborhood. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that these idiots are. They're like little attack dogs who want to bark at people for walking in their neighborhood. Not even on their property, but their neighborhood, right? It's not even theirs. It's somebody else's or a common property, whatever it is. But they're they're walking on that. Or somebody even standing in their own yard, right? It's more like that. Somebody is standing in their own yard, say, across the street, and the dog barks at them. And they're in their own yard, their own property, but the dog thinks that's theirs. Right? So this is what these idiots are that do these kind of things. They're like dogs. The mental capacity of that too. He says, The Italian sociologist uh, Mo Mosca wrote of this binary grouping phenomenon in the ruling class. Quote, If a certain number of stags are shut up in a park, he wrote, they will inevitably divide into two herds, which will always be in conflict with each other. Mosca continued, An instinct of very much the same sort seems to make its influence felt among men. And this is something that Jefferson pointed out, right? I mean, when he talked about secession, and he was against it in a letter to John Taylor of Caroline, he said, well, eventually, uh, we, if we leave the Union, you're going to have factions set up in this new confederacy, this new confederation, whatever it is. He didn't say it was illegal, by the way. But a new confederacy, whatever that is. And then you're going to have factions there. and people. So he didn't think it was a good idea to do these kind of things. But he recognized that you're going to have factions develop. Two groups are going to are going to coalesce, and you're going to have factions. So now, how to keep these the, those political footballs from becoming grenades? As I wrote a year ago here at the American Conservative, quote: The United States has all the preconditions for a civil war today, except one: the willingness to actually fight for the sake of disunity. And I think that's probably true. Uh, it doesn't. People aren't that interested in that kind of uh, in that kind of conflict now. They're looking for a peaceful separation. And so Calhoun's position was always aware of that. This is something people don't understand about Calhoun. He didn't want a civil war. He didn't want a shooting match. He didn't want the United States to divide. He loved the Union, which is why he tried to come up with all of these things to save the Union. Nullification was a way, and the concurrent majority was a way, to save the Union. It was a way to keep it together. Because he could see that these factions were eventually going to separate at some point. Over whatever reason, they were going to separate. You were going to have factions that would separate. And he wanted to have a way to preserve it without having to shoot at people and then have arbitrary power come in and force people into the Union. That's not really a free association anymore. That's a force association. Is that what we want? Is that what, is that what we champion? A force association? This is what these idiots that run around social media don't get. They're championing tyranny. That's what they're really saying. We celebrate tyranny. And so uh, Calhoun was trying to work out a way to prevent that. Protecting the minority from the majority. And a numerical majority that's very slim, even in the current United States. 
Pickerton says, a year later, it's still in our interest to avoid actual explosions, even as we must reckon with ever-deepening divisions. We must take a lesson from other diverse uh, polities that managed to keep differences from begetting violence. One such polity was the Habsburg domain of Austria-Hungary, a sprawling, polygot, and rich realm that for a long time finessed its way out of civil war and chaos. To be sure, the Habsburgs failed in the end and their empire crumbled. That's all the more reason to study them, because the student usually learns better from the sharp stick of failure than from the lollipop of success. As the U.S. wrestles with its internal divisions, let us learn how the Habsburgs succeeded with conservative realism, and how they failed when they veered from that sound path. It's interesting around the Habsburg, the, the, uh, Habsburg Empire, the Austrian Empire there, Austria-Hungary, because there was this kind of uneasy imperial structure in place, and then there was an attempt to force it another way, which caused divisions within the empire. As A.J.P. Taylor wrote in the Habsburg Monarchy, 1809-1918, quote, the strength of the Habsburgs lay in suppleness and maneuver. Faced with danger from the Ottoman Turks and Napoleon, they could give. What they could not risk was a life-and-death struggle, with no prospect of a compromise at the end for in this struggle, the less sophisticated combatant would survive. Yes, Vienna did plenty of fighting, but it favored culture and coalitions over conquest. For instance, after a military defeat at the hands of the Prussians in 1866, the Habsburg monarchy fell into crisis. The restive Hungarians, the largest majority in the empire, I'm sorry, largest minority in the empire, excuse me, in the past had made bids for independence and been bloodily crushed. This time, Budapest made a different demand, power sharing. Showing their suppleness, the Habsburgs agreed. The result was the establishment of the dual monarchy in 1867, with Austria and Hungary as theoretical equals within the empire, even if the Habsburg dynasty was still mostly in charge. Thus, the Austrians achieved the sort of internal compromise for the sake of peace that eluded the Americans around the same time. As we all know, Abraham Lincoln would have gladly accepted a deal to avoid the Civil War. Now, that's not true. Lincoln could have avoided had a deal long before there was any shooting, but he chose not to compromise. So, this is where, you know, you have to understand these people that would say things that uh, are, are right on, they're going to be Lincolnites and they're going to say things that are wrong because they had this weird infatuation with Abraham Lincoln that Lincoln can do no wrong. And he's going to use uh, this phrase, if I could save the Union without freeing any slaves, I would do it, this quote that he has. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. I mean, we, Lincoln did write that. But on the other hand, when he was presented with an opportunity to compromise, he said, don't. And that was, of course, the Crittenden Compromise. It would have saved the Union. Southerners were certainly fine with it, but he wasn't willing to compromise on that issue. So he was lying in that statement because there was an opportunity to compromise before the war even began, before Lincoln was even inaugurated. There was a compromise proposal. Lincoln was telling people publicly and privately don't support any compromise measures. So we know the Union could have been saved and we could have avoided the war. Now, of course, the people will say, well, yeah, but then slavery would have been saved for a time. And we would have had slavery, yes. And unfortunately, we would have had slavery, yes, for a time. But who knows how long that would have lasted? I don't know. Nobody knows. It was never given. It was never an opportunity to really see if there could have been some kind of proposal long-term that would have ended the institution and... Uh, not had to go through a war. We didn't have an opportunity to do that. Lincoln didn't give us any choice. So Pickerton says, Back in Europe, 
the compromise worked pretty well, like the, the dual monarchy, the doppel monarchy. Just last year, Patrick Blanchfield wrote in the New York Republic that after 1867, quote, the empire was the second largest state in continental Europe, its second biggest in population and an economic powerhouse, boasting a national health insurance system, mandatory accident insurance, and by the close of the century, a massive state-funded postal, telegraph, railway, and electricity infrastructure. Blanchfield praised the ability of the Habsburgs to manage diversity. Overwhelmingly Roman Catholic but multi-religious, with large populations of Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, Muslims, and Jews, it was multi-ethnic and multilingual too, with nine official languages and an official version of its national anthem for each. The Habsburgs knew that they couldn't make a move without considering the impact of the delicate balance of Austrians and Hungarians, and to a lesser extent, Bohemians uh, and all these other groups. I'm not going to get into all these groups. There's a tremendous number of them, right? Uh, Corinthians, Galatians, Romanians, Ruthrian, I mean, all Slovenians, all these different groups, right? So we have all these different groups in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was a real multi-ethnic, multinational empire. Now, of course, then the argument comes in, well, the United States is not that. We're all one people. We have one people. One people created the Constitution. One people did this. One people did that. Of course, John Taylor of Caroline's response to that is, well, that would be like utopia for utopians. We don't have an America for Americans. There's no American people. We know if you read David Hackett Fisher that there were multinational organizations here in America from the beginning in the 17th century. We had different cultures, even if they were English, we had different cultures on the North American continent. And those different cultures and nationalities in many ways would come into conflict. Now, it's even more pronounced if you look at the different kind of ethnic nationalities that have shown up in North America and in many ways are culturally autonomous. I mean, they kind of feed into an American culture, whatever that is. We know that there's not really an American culture, but they participate in it. However, they have their own distinct cultures, languages, customs, in some cases, religions. So we have that as well. Dealing with this ethnic goulash, the Habsburgs grew cautious, which is to say conservative. That caution served the Habsburgs well in the matter of colonialism, which became all the rage in Europe when countries were scrambling for overseas possessions. The Habsburgs, with their hands full at home, wanted none of that. Today, of course, in the blowback to imperialism, Austria and Hungary rate as innocent bystanders, not prime movers. So no world empire, right? Stay out of that. And the United States would do well to also... Uh, have that kind of policy today, right? Stay out of imperialism, stay out of nation building, stay out of Ukraine, in other words, and Russia. Let them have what they're doing in Russia themselves. Don't involve the United States in these European wars for European interests. It's that simple. But we don't learn from these things. Of course, there was that time when the Habsburgs lost sight of this uh, caution. As blunders go, it was a doozy. Justifiably outraged over the 1914 assassination of their crown prince, the Habsburgs let themselves get swept up in war fury. While there's plenty of blame to be spread around for the origins of World War I, the Austrians deserve their share of it. Yet what's undeniable is that during the Great War, the Habsburg instinct towards suppleness of maneuvers soon reasserted itself. Uh, their foreign minister during the middle part of the conflict was desperately reaching for a negotiated settlement. In his words, the aged and peace-loving Europe Emperor Franz Joseph knew a victory peace was out of the question. We are therefore compelled to effect a peace with sacrifice. Peace with sacrifice. 
Not much moral clarity there, just a desire to stop the shooting. Yet even as it was losing the war, Berlin still controlled its junior partner. And so uh, Cesarin's chain was jerked, wrote the frustrated diplomat. My efforts in this connection seeking peace were interrupted by my dismissal. The Habsburg trace survives today. The country of Czechoslovakia was created in 1918 out of former Habsburg territory. Its predominant peoples, the Czechs and the Slovaks, were never entirely happy in their relationship. In fact, for a long time, the country's name was rendered as a hyphen, Czechoslovakia, to underscore its federated status. Then in 1992, not long after the withdrawal of the Red Army, Czechoslovakia split peacefully into two nations, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, the so-called Velvet Divorce. Here we can take note of the Habsburg Trace. Czechs and Slovaks had been a part of the Habsburg realm for more than four centuries, prior to 1918, and while they had, hadn't grown to love each other during that time, they had gotten used to each other. Both ethnicities had long and had long had medieval-type rights under Austrian rule, and in, 1940, and, I'm sorry, in 1848, they were able to set up their own parliaments, giving them plenty of practice in nonviolent statecraft. Now, 30 years after their separation, the two countries are still close. Polls show that Slovakia is the Czech Republic's favorite neighbor and vice versa. The two countries sometimes even speak for each other in diplomatic settings. By contrast, Yugoslavia was made up of substantially of a territory that had never been part of the Habsburg realm. The dominant nation, Serbia, was a historic enemy of the Austrians. That may be a big reason why Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia met different fates. So you had Yugoslavia, and of course all of that happened there, which was a, NASA, a massive and nasty war of genocide, essentially, ultimately, is what happened there. And it was a very difficult situation in the 90s during the Clinton administration. We know the things that were going on there. So Czech, Czechoslovakia easily splits up because you already had this acceptance of diversity, is what they're saying. We don't really have an acceptance of diversity in America. We have my way or the highway. We have centralized, one-size-fits-all, top-down government. And if you don't like that, well, then it's my way or the highway. We don't have anything that would resemble... Uh, this kind of acceptance of not being a one people. The one people myth of America is the real problem. American nationalism is the real problem. There isn't such a thing. There never really has been such a thing. And by forcing other people to bend to your will, again, that's not liberty and freedom. That's tyranny. That's all it is. So then Pinkerton says, not, now to this not-so-United States this supersized mongrel nation of 335 million, speaking some 350 tongues. Some may yearn to make a multinational, multicultural nation un unicultural. Good luck with that. Let me, let me say that again. I kind of murdered that. Some may yearn to make a multicultural nation unicultural. Good luck with that. Again, it's the one-size-fits-all idea. But you're going to get into this. We're all one people. We're all one people. And I ask this question all the time in my classes when I bring up I put a definition of nation on the board, right? A traditional definition of nation. And I asked the students, are we a nation in the United States? And the knee-jerk reaction from all of them is no, we're not. But then why do we speak this way? Why do we have this kind of idea that we have to have one-size-fits-all, top-down government, everyone's got to be forced to do one thing or another? We've got to have an American culture and all this stuff. Why do we do that? Well, that's the Lincolnian legacy. And it's dangerous and it's destructive. We could have had a situation that would have had a way forward that would have allowed for real diversity in America, but Lincoln crushed all that. 
And so you have all these people running around, We're, we believe in diversity. No, you don't. You believe in your way or the highway. That's not real diversity. What's more likely to work is taking Americans as they are. Nudge them enough so that they don't kill their neighbors, but don't nudge them so much that they want to kill you. Fortunately, perhaps even providentially, we have a system in place that allows us to celebrate diversity without letting it destroy us. Federalism. Hey! Who's been talking about that for, I don't know, the entire show that I've been doing for all these years? It's amazing that people are, are really starting to see this. And again, this is a mainstream publication, The American Conservative. And um, this Pinkerton is written for all kinds of mainstream publications, not just American Conservative, but mainstream newspapers, even leftist newspapers. He's worked in the Bush administration. I mean, this is a guy that has been in and among the establishment for a long time. But he's saying, hey, we have federalism. Good old states' rights, he says, which allows different people in different states to choose different paths. Yeah. I mean, that's what federalism... That was the entire design of the Constitution. That was how the Constitution was sold to the states, by the way. That they would be free to do whatever was not denied to them by the Constitution. That they had granted to the central authority. See, there's concurrent grant, right? People don't understand this about Article 1, Section 10. The state said, we won't do these things because we allow the central government to do these things. That's it. That's why. We're not going to do them individually because we're going to do them collectively. That's it. They did the granting, though. So they said, we're not going to, if, if we give the central authority power, say, over trade, we're not going to do that ourselves. If we give the central authority power over the prospect of declaring war, we're not going to do that ourselves. We grant that central authority the power to do this. But by granting it, of course, you say that you are sovereign. The people of the states are sovereign. And so we're granting the central authority the ability to do that. But we can always resume that. A granted power can be resumed by the granting party at any time. Some say that states' rights, the fervent belief of Jefferson, Madison, and on a good day, Hamilton, were plowed under by the Civil War. Pinkerton says, not really. The Supreme, Supreme Court Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase wrote in 1869, the Constitution and all its provisions looks to an indestructible union composed of indestructible states. Others say that states' rights, the fervent belief of Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats, formerly known as states' rights Democrats, were finally plowed under by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yet to this day, states' rights aren't dead. Far from it. So it's interesting he, he notes uh, Salmon P. Chase in 1869. That's Texas v. White. Indestructible states. He's saying that we have states that can't be destroyed and a union that can't be destroyed. Chase, I mean, if you read that logically, saying we can't, we can't destroy the states, however, the Republican Party did do that. But what they did, more than anything else, uh, was say we have a state and then we had people in the state. Right? They're saying the state is a geographic entity and there's people in the state. What he's done is kind of taken the people out of it. The people made the state. The people made the state. And then the state, the people of the states, made the central authority. Not an indestructible union. That wasn't ever considered to be the case. Because you could always destroy the union. The states can do that anytime they want. But, again, I digress. It's That, that Texas v. White decision has got all kinds of problems with it. 
So Pinkerton says, recently the states have experimented variously on matters ranging from gambling to marijuana, to drag queens to the death penalty. Climate rules, sanctuary cities, welfare reform, just about everything is the subject of a state experiment. Already people can go to one state for their abortions and get their green energy subsidies, to another for their tax cuts and their AR-15s. Where will it end up? Free heroin in a blue state? Liberated uh, ivermedicine in a red state? Am I lacking imagination? I mean, no, you're not, because this is the way the states have always worked. This was the entire point. There were certain things the general government can do, and then everything else was left to the states. And all those things that he just cited, if you go back to Tench Cox, the Freeman essays, I've got a great class on that at McLeanhan Academy, originalism, the originalist papers, right, where I go through 101 documents in favor of ratification, where I point out that federalism is the core of all of the arguments, really, against, I'm sorry, for the Constitution, that all of these people for the Constitution were proposing federalism as a way to not have centralization. That was the real fear. We were going to swallow up the states. So we had federalism. He says, in the meantime, we can observe that this back and forth is energizing. In science, whenever things change their state, form, say, from solid to liquid to liquid or gas, there's often a release of energy. We can see the same phenomenon in human affairs. In history, land reform that turns serfs into yeoman farmers unleashes economic and political energy. The 13 colonies were more dynamic as the United States. In 1911, when John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil was broken up by the trust busters, the resulting 34 corporate fragments doubled in total value. By this reckoning, the competition inherent in constitutional federalism also makes the states into laboratories of prosperity. Which state will do better? Will California gain by financing green energy development, or will Texas do better by expanding oil drilling? One shouldn't necessarily bet against California. Since 2015, it has moved up four notches, now boasting the fourth largest economy in the world. And if the fusion energy pioneered at the state's Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory works out, it could soar even higher. Yet, in Moscow-like manner, the 50 states have a way of congealing into two opposite blocks. Here in the U.S., that polarization is reinforced by our winner-take-all first past the post-electoral system. And again, this is something where people have pointed out, is there a problem in our winner-take-all single-member district plurality voting? I've said it before on this podcast, and of course talking about these things with uh, the concurrent majority. From 2017 to 2021, blue states were up in arms against the dreaded Trump. For instance, then California Attorney General Xavier Berka, I don't know, Bursera, I'm sorry, sued the Trump administration more than 100 times. Since 2021, the situation has been reversed. It's red states, most notably Florida, suing the Biden administration. Indeed, Governor Ron DeSantis isn't just suing, he is actively investigating the federal government for possible illegal behavior in regard to the COVID vaccine. The idea that a U.S. state would investigate the federal government is, to put it mildly, extraordinary. Yet what's so extraordinary is that there's been so little pushback from the establishment. Maybe that's because the center isn't holding, because there's no center there. Today, instead of a center, there are just two pluralities. And this is important. The, the center really has no authority. It has no power unless it's given that by the constituent parts. And we have factions in government. This is what, of course, Madison worried about. It's what Washington wrote about in the farewell address. Factions. But we have factions. And we have uh, the Democrat Party, which is a collection of factions, now controlling the center, at least the executive branch, um, and, uh, and one house of the Congress, right? The Senate. So we have that faction. Then we have the other faction, um, 
which at times is also just a collection of other factions controlling a house and, of course, uh, theoretically, the Supreme Court. But we have these factions, and then, we, of course, we have the states. We have governors and different Republican, Democrat legislatures, whatever it is, but we have all of that. Hopefully, the red-blue split here in America will stay peaceful. In the spirit of uh, Chechnya and Slovakia, perhaps we could call it Redia and Bluia. With that in mind, we might usually learn from our own history, in particular from John C. Calhoun. Now, this is amazing, because if you're a Michael Anton, mentioning Calhoun is like mentioning the devil, right? Mentioning all these West Coast Straussians, you mentioned Calhoun, and you've just mentioned the American Hitler. So it's amazing that the American conservative and Pinkerton would actually bring up Calhoun and say, you know, Calhoun had a solution for all this. He did, right? We could also go back, of course, to... Uh, the other plan, uh, the Patterson plan at the Philadelphia Convention, the Smallston, New Jersey plan, right? Which would have had a plural executive. So this isn't anything new to come up with a plural executive to try to solve the sectional differences and actually have these things protected against an encroachment by another section or another people or another philosophy, whatever it is, to have another, to have a check on these things. Because of his views on slavery, Calhoun is in ill odor today, and yet because of his views on minority rights, he is an unacknowledged legislator of the world. This is true, right? So because of his views on slavery, you can't talk about Calhoun, but because of his views on minority rights, Calhoun is still studied all over the world. There are a lot of people in the world that don't really care what he said about slavery and race and whatever, but they're going to look at what he said about government because it's a way to solve some of the problems and and not just the United States, but also in other places around the world. Today, whoever talks about minority rights as being of a mystical, even sacred nature, and thus being unalienable, is taking a page, knowingly or not, from Calhoun. Calhoun was all in favor of states' rights, and yet at the same time, as a student of power, he was shrewd enough to understand that a single state couldn't fend for itself. As he wrote in his posthumously published Disquisition on Government, the dominant majority would have the same tendency to oppress the and abuse of power, to which Calhoun continued, power can only be resisted by power. To be powerful, the states would have to arrange themselves into blocks or, or confederacies. In that spirit, Calhoun put forth a sort of Republican version of the Habsburg dual monarchy, a dual presidency. Quote, Indeed, it may be doubted, he wrote, whether the framers of the Constitution did not commit a great mistake in constituting a single instead of a plural executive. He recalled that the two most distinguished constitutional governments of antiquity, both in respect to permanence and power, had a dual executive. I refer to those of Sparta and Rome. The former had two hereditary and the latter two elective chief magistrates. For Calhoun, this doppel presidency idea was no throwaway. He meant it, and so he elaborated, quote, It is objected that a plural executive necessarily leads to intrigue and discord among its members, and that it is inconsistent with prompt and effective action. Such slowness was a good thing, as it would force checks and balances deliberation. This is exactly right. You would have to have, again, supermajorities. You would have, you would paralyze government unless there was compromise. What do we have now? We don't ever have compromise. Biden stands up and says, Republicans do this, I'll veto it. There's no compromise. And uh, if, the, if the Democrats are in office, they don't care. They just ram stuff through. If they're in power, I should say. They don't care. They just ram stuff through. The Republicans aren't as good at that. They always want to compromise. The Democrats don't care. But where's the compromise? One thing you can say about Bill Clinton, and Clinton was, I mean, there's all kinds of problems with Clinton. But one thing you can say about Clinton 
is that when the Republicans took power in the 90s, Clinton's method of triangulation, of taking credit for Republican proposals and, will, and was willing to compromise on all these things, was an amazing thing now. No Democrats do that anymore. Joe Biden doesn't do it. If you had, you know, Barack Obama didn't do it. None of these people did it. They didn't do it at all. And so the Clinton years in the 90s, when you had real compromise taking place in Washington, D.C., I mean, look, for all, again, all the problems of the Clinton administration, there were a lot of them. One thing you can say positive about the Clinton administration is that we did start having a surplus in the government. The debt clock stopped. We stopped racking up debt. It stopped. So that was an amazing thing. We don't have any of that anymore. There's, there's no one really willing to take any kind of financial responsibility, fiscal responsibility, or have any kind of compromise that would do these things. If you simply say, we need to have some, we need to control spending because it's a real problem, you just want to throw a granny over the cliff. He says the two presidencies would negotiate with each other. The pairing would become the means of restoring the harmony and concord of the country and the government. It would make a union a union in truth, a bond of mutual affection and brotherhood, and not a mere connection used by the stronger as your instrument of dominion and aggrandizement. So right, or domination. I mean, this is the other point. Some will insist that this was just a cover for the defense of slavery. If so, that's moot now because nobody's a slave and nobody misses the peculiar institution. That's an amazing statement to say, right? Some, some will say this is just a cover. Uh, so you're just bringing something up because, oh, I'm just going to discount that because Calhoun said it. But as Pinkerton says, this is a stupid argument because that doesn't even apply right now. Today, what we should endure is uh, the way that Calhoun thought about the resolution of irresolvable differences. As legal scholar Jorg Nippeth writes, Calhoun's approach to, con to consent of the governed as expressed through concurrent majorities of the whole and of his affected constituent minorities presented a relevant model for peaceful resolution of fundamental political questions that preserves both liberty and union in a large, diverse, and divided country. Jorg Niprath, I should say. Jorg Niprath. Let me get the name right. That's an amazing statement. Here's Jorg Niprath saying, hey, Calhoun was onto something here. We should listen to John C. Calhoun. Ah, diversity. How much ink has been spilled in thy name? One prominent diversitarian was... Laniel uh, Gunier, named by President Bill Clinton to be his assistant attorney general for civil rights. Gunier's book, The Tyranny of the Majority, is a standard text for left minoritarians. Uh, and while the author doesn't mention Calhoun, her colleague at Yale, Stephen L. Carter, recalled, the, uh, recalled Calhoun in his foreword to her book. Carter noted that one critic of uh, Gunier's ill-stated appointment had called her a Calhounian better qualified for the Bosnian desk at state than civil rights at justice. Ding, ding. There we go again with mention of former province, a former province of Austria-Hungary. Carefully delineated ethnic spoilsmanship, not necessarily equal, but always careful, is exactly, exactly what the Habsburgs practiced. And, that's why, and it's why the left celebrates today whether or not the Habsburgs, let alone Calhoun, get any credit. So, again... This is important. We've always thrown these Calhoun charges out there as kind of a pejorative. Well, Calhoun, 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 bad name. But as Pinkerton's pointing out, well, maybe this is actually a good thing. Maybe we should use, maybe think more Calhoun. That's actually a good thing when it comes to government and protecting minorities and protecting these people from an abusive majority. He says, must Americans, conservatives, too, celebrate diversity? Not necessarily, but if we wish to be effective in a diverse country... We need to be mindful of the realities of political power and a diverse polity. 
Red states will likely wish to form a block against Biden and the Blues. In many ways, they already have. One Republican operative said of Ron DeSantis and Politico, he's really the governor of red state America. It does seem that there's an emerging red state way as well as a blue state way, and it's only a matter of time before dual institutions are created on either side of the divide, akin to the old Austria-Hungary or to the duality that Calhoun had in mind. As President John F. Kennedy declared in 1963, if we cannot end our differences, and now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. And since we cannot end our differences, we must make our country safe for duality. Again, a great piece because he's actually thinking about these things critically in a way that's not just epithets and chants and slogans and uh, pejoratives and you know knee-jerk uh, fallacies of logic. He's actually saying, well, maybe there's something to this kind of concurrent majority and duality and all these things. Maybe that would actually help America in the modern age as America begins to fragment. Maybe we need to think about these things to preserve... The Union, right? To not have it fall apart, which is the most Calhounian thing to do. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McLean Show. See you then.